So, Berto, I have an email from an anonymous patron in which she describes a situation in which she was sexually abused by someone as when she was a child. And she has a very interesting thing that she wants to share. Okay. And for those of you out there who have been sexually abused, you want to, uh, and you can be triggered by stuff like this, you want to proceed with caution. Uh, I'm not going to provide any sort of gory details. Right. Uh, so be aware of that. But the discussion of, of general pedophilia will be discussed. Again, no specific graphic right, right. pictures in your mind. Okay. So before doing that, let's introduce the podcast. This is the podcast called Psychology in Seattle. I am your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a professor and a therapist. My name is Humberto Castaneda. I sell Bitcoin for cash. Uh, that's interesting. Um, doesn't everyone do that with Bitcoin? Isn't that the point of Bitcoin? But I do it so well. Yeah. So again, anonymous patron writing in, I have a request for a potentially uncomfortable topic. I was wondering if you do a podcast on pedophiles. I have always been curious because I have a certain sympathy for some pedophiles. Please let me explain. As a child, my next door neighbor was a pedophile. He was wanted by the FBI and he was going by an alias. Oh my God. I spent most of my childhood over at his house playing with the boys who lived with him. I and a handful of other children were abused for several years. Boys lived with him? Yeah. And I am currently in therapy for that. He did some very bad things to children which are inexcusable and unforgivable. That being said, when I was not being abused, this man was essentially the only father figure in my life. (sighs) In most aspects of life, he was a very kind man. I loved him. I relied on him. And he taught me a lot of things. He actually taught, he actually had a lot of empathy. I feel like I learned a lot of my empathy and compassion for animals and for other people from him. He would feed all the stray cats in the neighborhood and bring some of them in. I was the reason that he was caught and sent to prison for the rest of his life because I eventually told my mother about it, and then I told the police about it, and he went to prison. And it's hard for me to explain how much that hurt me. I missed him. I felt so sorry for him, and I felt so guilty for being the one who put him there. All I could remember were the good things he did for me. I've talked with only a few people who are close to me about this, and every time I mention that I don't hate him, they become angry with me. They want me to simply hate him and consider him evil for the damage he has done. But he wasn't evil, and the things were not just that black and white. And that is how I feel it must be with the majority of pedophiles. It it is not black and white. I am hoping that you will address the huge amount of public disgust we have for them, which keeps them from seeking help if they are having urges to harm children. I am wondering if you've ever had clients who were pedophiles or dealt with something similar, to what extent can we help them? Is there a psychological reason behind why pedophiles are pedophiles? Is it nature or nurture or both? And I would love to hear Umberto's input if he is interested in discussing this topic with you. Are you interested in discussing this topic? Yeah, very interesting. Okay. 
As a final note, I am not whatsoever condoning pedophilia or anything that hurts anyone else, particularly innocent children who can't protect themselves. And I also understand that many people have been so horribly hurt by pedophiles and that they may find this topic offensive and hard to listen to. I don't want to hurt or trigger anyone, and I hope that I don't. So, Berto, what are your thoughts on this? You know, the first thing that came to mind was uh, the Greeks, you know, the Greek relationships between older males and young males, and uh, very very well documented that it was a, so, sort of a common practice amongst at least some some class of folks in in that time. Um, and it was, it seemed like it was societally acceptable, uh, to some extent. I don't know the ages. I don't know, you know, how young the boys would be. I have no idea, right? But it seems like it was, the second thing that came to mind was, uh, NAMBLA, which, uh, is the North American Man Boy Love Association, I think. And, um, the, it, it, I've always seen. What are they? Explain to people what they are. Well, I, I don't know the details, but it seems like an organization where they try to, Try to make it seem more okay or more acceptable that they have legitimate romantic relationships, you know, between older adult males and younger non-adult males. Um, but that's about as much as I know. Yeah. Uh, I also know that it's uh, also the North American Marlon Brando Association in South Park. But ultimately, I, I, I think it's hard to hear this story and get angry at the person because no matter what, they were a victim. Yeah. And and it sounds like not only were they a victim, but they were a courageous victim that that actually ended up speaking up and uh, landed the person in jail. I also find it very understandable that because of their victimization, they developed some deep feelings for their, their victimizer. And yeah, sadly, that when they went away, they felt the, the loss. Um, but that doesn't, you know, in my mind, that doesn't mean that that somehow makes it okay or something like that. It's it's more like the Stockholm sy- Stockholm syndrome or something along those lines. Right. That, um, Stockholm syndrome is what comes to mind as a possibility. Uh, do you, I think anonymous patron is interested in your thoughts because of your history? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, okay, so a couple things. I wasn't abused by an adult. I was abused by a twelve year old when I was five. So obviously, still a huge age disparity. Uh, and a power imbalance. Um, it was also um, a female. Did you have babysitter. any sort of positive thoughts about her? Yes, definitely. So that's that, I think that's a good point of of balance there. When when it was happening, I felt very lucky. I felt chosen. I felt I definitely felt a little bit of jealousy because it was me and this other boy, and we were friends. And I was like, oh, I can't believe it's both of us. I wish it was just me, right? I remember that. I remember I was sort of in this in this in club i was being given secrets that i shouldn't have but i I felt like wow i know things and uh and i was i felt special i felt special when when uh, the act itself never felt right it always felt i remember it feeling gross and i didn't quite understand it Mm -hmm. like i wasn't sure what the hell we were actually doing and it felt gross and it felt wrong but everything surrounding it felt like, oh, and I liked her. It seemed like she, you know, I, I thought she was pretty or whatever. And I and I thought, oh, this is great. And I loved spending time with her. And then I, I would look forward to when I would get to be alone and be babysit by her and stuff like that. And then 
uh, it stopped naturally. I never told anyone at that age, and it's just like I moved away, and so it never kept happening. Um, and I, I feel like I missed her in some ways, mm-hmm. and I, I feel like when I ran into her much later when I was 12 and she was 18 and I ran into her at some random party in a completely different city. Um, I felt a mix of anger, but also like almost longing for that to reoccur. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then that was the last time I I ever saw her. Uh, And then I, I suppose in my early teenage years and then early 20s, I still saw it as just sort of a cool thing that had happened to me. And I never considered it abuse until I started, you know, when I started telling people about it and then I started maybe reading or maybe hearing a little bit more about abuse and things. Then I started realizing that, oh, wait a minute, that wasn't a cool thing. Right. It's not like a lot of kids and minors are psychologically minded, right? Right. Uh, it Now, it doesn't erase the positive things that, you experienced, but you also started piecing together all these negative effects from the, uh, the right. experience that you went through, you know, like, um, the, the impulse to exploit others sexually. That's right. The, uh, trust issues and, and the sexualization of your, of your brain really. Yeah. And putting myself at high risk in the future. Yeah. Uh, in, in, in risky sexual situations. Right. You know? And so it, it had a, a an ill effect, a number of ill effects on you that when you were 14, you wouldn't know were before you or even present at the time. Right. Uh, you could only consciously think about the positive things, right? Um, now, again, caveat, as as the page, anonymous patron is, is also saying, uh, pedophilia is wrong. Child abuse is wrong. It's immoral. It's harmful. There's... N- you know, although we might be able to point to some positive things that right. exist between the relationship, there's nothing positive about the abuse. Right. And there are easily ways to have a relationship, but you could have had a secret um, uh, bonding relationship with this babysitter that didn't have to involve you being exploited sexually. Right. It could have been over some TV show I loved. And yeah. We, we wrote little stories about it or something, and it was our little secret. Any number of things like that. Also, by the way, years later, I started realizing that it's very likely that she had been or was being abused. Right, which is often the case. Yeah. 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 So uh, first off, like I said, uh, sexual abuse is awful. Most of it goes unreported. Many perpetrators of abuse uh, will perpetrate abuse to many children before getting caught. The effects of sexual abuse last throughout the survivor's life in most cases. Uh, sexual abuse needs to be stopped. It's a crime. It's it's immoral. It's awful. Um, having said that, it's important to know that there are different kinds of abusers. When I when I hear this story, it, it compels me to uh, explain the following. It, it, there's, in my rough categorization, there are three or maybe two different categories of, uh, of diagnoses that would mm-hmm. explain why someone would ha- want to have sex with, with a child. And there are, uh, in the worst case situations, there's what the sadist group of people. So if you're just a pure sadist, 
but not a sexual sadist. You you just you you by definition you have a disorder or a brain uh, such that you get pleasure by harming other people or by witnessing other people being harmed. Right, and it's very real. Like you. You want you love to see people cry for real. You love to pe- you love to see people die. You love to see people being raped. You love to see people uh, having their uh, arm chopped off or their head chopped. It, it gives you pleasure. This is so aberrant and out of the ordinary. That's why we call it a mental disorder because it it it's just so out of the ordinary and mm. it, and it can create problems because if you get pleasure now. Most of us get pleasure when other people's lives are enhanced. When we give a gift to our loved one and they like the gift, we feel good. We lose resources by giving someone something, <laughs> but we actually win because we're, we're altruistic and we care and, and we like seeing other people happy. And, but for some people, they have the opposite situation where they actually like to see people suffer and so sometimes these people, so these people are general sadists to anything. So they, I see. they, they, they'll punch someone in the face to animals, see them bleed. Yeah, people, animals, whatever. But children are actually easy victims because they are, they tend not to speak up mm-hmm. and they can be controlled physically more easily. And one of the ways in which you can make someone suffer is through sex. So one sadist might abuse a child physically and, a, and another one might decide, well, I'll just right. use sex. So they don't, they don't care about the sex per se. It's more that they're just, they just want to see that person suffer. Right, right, right. Okay. The second category is very close to the first is, is the sexual sadist. So this person actually has a specific form of sadism in which they actually get sexual pleasure and, and just general well-being ple- pleasure from someone being someone suffering sexually. I see. So this is someone who is compelled to at least fantasize or even commit rape or something and commit uh, on anybody. And then there's a particular kind of sexual sadist who will target uh, children. So these people are they're not they're not it, it's they're not really sexually attracted to children. I see these people these sadists. The, you know. the, the fact that they're children is a convenient way to achieve their other exactly i see exactly now there's a the third category is really quite different from the first two and that's what my terminology would be the non-sadistic pedophile mm-hmm. and th- this these are people who are uh, just they're just simply attracted to children they might also be attracted to adults but but they might not be they like, might like sandowski sandowski was it was the, uh, the football coach yeah was i didn't look into him um and this is as as is sadism often the result of abuse um, and biology and both. So it, it's but whenever they look into sadists and um, non sadistic pedophiles, they often find abuse of some kind and I and see. often sexual abuse in their in their history. And sexual abuse can be actually a quite broad category. For instance, if your father leaves a bunch of porn around the house, that mm. can spark the beginnings and you pile on neglect and abuse on top right. of that, that can be enough to kind of uh, plant the seed of, of pedophilia in your mind. Uh, but often you will find that people who like to have sex with children were sexualized by an adult when they were young, or they were forced to sexualize each other sometimes. Because oh, essentially 
the way to think about sexuality that explains a lot of things, honestly, is that we have a capacity for sexuality that we're born with. Right. It makes sense, right? We have an instinct for sexuality, but it's a very broad, almost empty canvas mm-hmm. that we are born with. As we grow old, or some, some very faint images that we're born with, as we experience sexuality in our lives as we grow up, the, the painting gets painted. I see. So if you are, uh, say, f- six years old, and you're playing Legos on the ground, and your mom's f- couple friends come over to the house... And they're standing, and you're in the living room, and you're these two women who are in their 20s, and they're sitting on the couch, and you're next to their feet, and you can and you can see their their shins, and they have short skirts on, and you're looking at these women. Now, as a six-year-old, you have no idea right. what's stirring inside of you, but some let's say something stirs some mm-hmm. some early proto sexuality stir you you don't even know the arousal but but you get a, a little sexual charge from like being close to this these women's knees and shins and you know what lies beyond mm-hmm. the the skirt right. line again you're six you don't know you don't you don't even know what sex is but you get this biological charge well Later in life, the chance that you're going to have a foot fetish is increased. I see. That's yeah. how these things develop. Right. Is that as a as a young boy, you're you're on the floor around feet <laughs> when when a sexual charge enters your body. Is that why I have a marshmallow fetish? Why? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> like I love marshmallows yeah. when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. So you know, people will have panty fetishes because right. say they're ten and the very first time they saw a girl was when uh, she had panties on or something and he gets a sexual charge. And then for the rest of his life, uh, a particular brand of panties is what really (laughs) gets him going. Um, Certain positions that he might see a woman because the first time he saw a a pornographic magazine sent that charge through his body and connected that stimulus and painted that canvas. So, in the same way, when you are a child, and that was all male-centered, by the way. Sure. <laughs> I just kind of kept it that way because uh, it'd get creepy otherwise, I think. But um, because we're two men, and if I was to <laughs> speculate as to the <laughs> anyway, the point is, is that if you take a uh, individual, male or female, at a very young age, and you ex- and you give them reason for their biology to kick in their sexual arousal system while in the presence of a naked child's body or even because of a naked child child's body right. you you're start you're painting that canvas with a child not a foot not panties not an adult not a not a person in a porn not at the age of 13 with another 13 year old who has who has the sexual organs of, yeah. of that age but you're you're connecting that sexual feeling of like, ooh, this feels good, you know, or ooh, I wanted, I want more mm-hmm. of that. Right. You're connecting that with a child's body. And then you grow up and you're 40 years old and you still only get a, a sexual charge from that, from that child's, right. from that child's body. Um, plus this, the five-year-old who say is forced to have sex with his sister by mm-hmm. his by the father or something right uh, at age ten because he only can have sexual arousal from 
five-year-old girls, as he begins to masturbate, he's, he fantasizes about that because that gives him pleasure. Right. And he does it, it. He does forces. it. And it just, you know, piles on, right? And so by the time you're 40, the amount of times you have thought about a five-year-old girl's body and had a sexual arousal is in the billions of moments. <laughs> I'm maybe exaggerating, right. but but that pathway in the brain becomes extremely uh, solidified. Yeah. Have you ever heard this hypothesis before, Berto? Uh, I not in this good amount of detail. I certainly heard that you know, and sort of knew that as a child you're very susceptible to um, what ha- what happens sexually at that point because it shouldn't be happening unless it's natural little experimentation or whatever. But the point is that it could get. Uh, you can get, get sort of like a warped connection between what you find pleasurable and what you know what is presented to you, and so I had heard not as good versions of that. Similar to a spanking fetish, uh, you can de- you can develop early in life if if because spank when you're spanking someone when you're being spanked, it's close to your genitals, mm. and your genitals could even be brushed as you're I being spanked, and so. For some people, that sexual charge kind of kicks in, and then later in life, they, they like it. They okay. really like being spanked. If I might, Berto, point out one of the ones I, and we'll cut all this out if we haven't <laughs> talked about this on the podcast before, but uh, to get real with your uh, experience, you were uh, c- uh, experiencing sexual charge while being in a situation in which you weren't quite so comfortable, right? Oh, and, definitely. Yeah. And you weren't like, on board. You weren't like, hey, I want to do this right now. Totally. Like you were like, okay. Yeah. I um, wasn't an active, willing participant. Right. So you're you're like, okay, I guess that's what's gonna happen now. And right. and and someone is kind of preying on you. Now at the time you're not thinking of it as preying, you're thinking of it as like dominance, you know, like sure. she's she's in charge, she's bigger, she she knows what to do. You know yeah. what I mean? And so she's experienced. She's experienced. And so all of those qualities have been noticeably linked to your arousal as an adult, right? Right. Um, Not only, uh, if I might, again, we'll cut all this out if you don't want this to be, by all means, if if you don't want this to be shared. But but you've shared, I think on the podcast, but at least to me in person, that in your early life as a young man, you know, 20 years ago, would occasionally engage in behaviors towards women that had an exploitation tinge to it. Now, that didn't yeah. mean you would seek out and and sexually assault someone. No. But, but there was a bit of like question mark as to whether or not she was on board or not and that uh, felt okay and maybe even sexually interesting to you. Well, it's actually worse than that in the sense that I didn't realize it at the time. In some cases, I didn't realize it too much later, but uh, subconsciously, more often than not, I targeted women that had had abuse, mm. and uh, and and then what targeting means is I would touch them inappropriately. Yeah, and I would, in my mind, think it's just flirtatious. It's just this is what we do. Yeah, um, and I and that is something I had started doing even at five with with someone who was six. I remember it's like. I, I just put my hand down the back of her pants mm-hmm. and she was like, what are you doing? She looked at me like with the most confused look and she's like, what are you doing? And, and let me, let me drill down on this a little bit. It wasn't necessarily just learned like, Oh, I learned it. Was it, uh, well, my question is, 
was it partially like, ooh, this is going to feel good to me. I, I want to do this, or this this is this is a sensual experience that I want to have, or something. Do you know what I'm saying? It was the only way I I thought to connect with that person. So you you wanted to connect, and you're thinking this is how this you is connect. how you connect. Yeah. yeah, you reach out to That's genitals right. without asking. Yeah. And, and then this whole thing, by the way, went into dormancy through my early teenage development. My I actually all my teenagers, like I never as a teenager did that. Yeah. You know, and then it was like in my 20s when it started manifesting itself. Yeah. And, and usually it was alcohol involved at a party or something. And I'm just like, of course, you know, in my head, I'm like, oh, I think, you know, what's, you know what I should do right now is just grab this, grab him by the pussy. Because, you know, yeah. that's what if I want to be present, you know, like seriously, like it was more of a, oh, we're just having fun. Right. Well, you got well, you got to be so uptight, you know. We're just having fun. I, I didn't realize I was I was being um, abusive in those moments. And then the flip side of that was the the times where I would put myself back in an abusive situation with, say, a stripper or something, where um, I would I would put myself in a in a you know physically dangerous from the sense of like possible diseases, things like that, but also like environmentally dangerous because like I'm in a strip club yeah. where I might get kicked out. I might get, you know, who knows what might happen. And also reckless because I'm like drinking and also like a lot of things piled up where I am actually not getting sexual arousal out of it, but I'm going through the motions. Right. And it, it usually, you know, and so that was me playing. If I thought about this m- many years later was like, that was me p- replaying out my own abuse and setting up a situation where I could feel like that's what was happening. Right. Which is really weird. Right. And it's interesting the way you describe it because it's not like you're saying, ooh, it was really turning me on. It, it's a repetition compulsion, as, as Freud called it, and it's recreating these yeah. these traumatic events. Like I could never get an arousal. Like I, I wouldn't get hard, you know? Yeah, but but it felt... But you use word like connection and stuff. Yes. Because... And that's another thing to point out is that these sexual abuse moments weren't just sex like that because we're so puritanical we immediately just go to like genitals and stuff you know it was it was much bigger than that it was it was connection it was physical it was feeling special it was you know in a way kind of friendship and and acceptance and and all these uh, lots of things that we look for in relationships including sex you know in fact as we're talking right now and i'm thinking back at the times that i that I uh, crossed boundaries in that way. I'm not talking about the strippers. I'm talking like with with normal uh, females. Um, I don't remember ever getting turned on or being turned on. It was always like like a connection thing. Like, oh, this is what I'm going to do to connect with this person. Yeah. And of course, it was never that like verbal, right? But but it wasn't ever like, oh, ooh, I gotta get my hand in there because I'm so turned on. It was never like that, which is weird. <laughs> Like the things that actually turned me on are quite different. Yeah. So it was maybe it's because well, though that would go against the other thing we were talking about. But when I was being in that situation with that babysitter, obviously I never got aroused, right? And and I never took away from it the oh man, that was hot, right? It was more like that was fun, that was interesting, that was so mysterious, and the act itself was like oh, so. so <laughs> in those moments, as a five year old. You don't remember ever getting a sexual charge from that? No, it, it's certainly like from everything I know as an adult, from what I feel as sexual charge, I don't have a single memory or moment where it felt anywhere near in that vicinity. That's interesting because 
I, I, and probably for a good re, for a good, uh, it's probably a good thing that didn't happen. Yeah, probably lucky or something. Yeah, but what would have happened if that would have happened? You know, either inadvertently, you know, or if she had spent more time trying to create that. You know what I mean? Right. That might have led to a deeper uh, wiring problem. Yeah. Uh, you know that you could have suffered greater. So, uh, in some ways, you might have been spared by not having that be a part of the experience. Yeah. I mean, part part of the thing that probably helped me is that it didn't go on for years and years. You know, it, it was during a period of time and it happened not every day, you know, because she wasn't my daily babysitter. And so I don't know how many times it happened. I remember distinctly like at least two instances. It might have been 10 instances, you know, who knows? So... And I don't know how many it takes to trigger or whatever, but for whatever, the the lucky part of this, if there is, is that it certainly wasn't ongoing or brutal enough to like leave me incapacitated. And it was stuff that I was mostly able to overcome through therapy and years of bad mistakes and things like that. Whereas some people, unfortunately, you could never recover from some of the abuse they suffer. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's take a break. And when we get back, let's continue talking about this and, and comment on some of the anonymous patrons' questions. What do you say, Bruno? Yes. Hey, everyone. If you remember from last month, you remember that I was trying to get everyone to sign up with Talkspace by using the promo code KIRK, K-I-R-K, because if a, if a bunch of you sign up, then they would Talkspace would become an ongoing sponsor. And a few of you did actually sign up, which means that they were impressed and now they have become a sponsor ongoing. We have a short contract with them. So if more of you actually sign up with Talkspace using the promo code Kirk, then we'll have uh, perhaps the contract will last even longer. Sponsorship is a is a wonderful way for everyone to win. Uh, the podcast wins because we get pretty good revenue from sponsorship. Talkspace wins because they get connected with people who will enjoy their service. And you listeners, if you're looking for a therapist and you're having a hard time, hard, having a hard time, or <clears throat> you don't have easy access to therapy, or you just want to see what online therapy is about, or as I've talked about in other episodes about online therapy, sometimes it's it's just kind of nice to vent with someone. And with Talkspace, you can do that every day. And so if, if you just need uh, to someone to, to download with and vent with, then, you know, you, you can use Talkspace therapy as a, as a place for supportive therapy. And if you use the promo code Kirk, then you get a, a pretty good discount on the first month's um, fee or whatever. And from what I understand, it's, it's pretty cheap, especially when you compare it to on regular in-office therapy. Again, as I've talked about before, there's a place for in-office therapy for sure, and I think there's a there's a place for online counseling as well. And I think Talkspace is a wonderful, legit outfit that you can go with if you're looking for online counseling. As I've talked about before, I know one of the people who trains the therapist, uh, Shannon McFarland. She's also she's also a therapist. You can actually like request Shannon if you want. Uh, she's a, a former super, supervisee and student of mine. And she's talked about how they are very careful about who, what sort of counselors they let to um, work with them. They're very careful about ethics and, and legal procedures and all this kind of stuff. And other websites don't necessarily do that. 
So if you're looking for online counseling, please sign up. Go to Talkspace.com, use the promo code Kirk, and you and you get a discount. When you use that promo code, it signals to Talkspace that you're one of my listeners, and then they are more likely to extend the sponsorship. Uh, the the more revenue we get, the easier it is for me to pull away from my regular job in my practice, so that I can focus on this podcast, which means we can do more in depth episodes and uh, really address all of your questions. So uh, please do do so now. Go to talkspace.com. Use the promo code Kirk. Thank you so much. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't already, please become a patron of the podcast. Go to patreon.com. Become a patron and get it, get access to hundreds of exclusive episodes that only patrons can listen to. These exclusive episodes are often hours long in which we do deep dives into various different topics. And so go to patreon.com, become a patron of the podcast. And plus, uh, if we get a few more patrons, we will reach the level where we will start donating money to petfinder.com, which saves pets from being euthanized and connects them with loving families like me. My my cats are from PetFinder.com. Okay, so let's move forward here. Okay, so again, in my rough estimate, we have like the sadist group, we have the sexual sadist group, and we have the non-sadistic pedophile. These people are uh, genuinely attracted to children in the same... Every listener out there, you have a particular group of people, maybe it's everyone on the planet, but or every adult on the planet, but you have a group of objects that are you are interested in having sex with. Um, and I actually, I should acknowledge that some people don't want sex with anybody, yeah. <laughs> but, but you have a preference, you know, there, there's a, there's a, there's a, you either don't want to have sex or you have an object and the object has, there's qualities of that object that you look for. Right. Uh, they, those might be extremely broad or they might be extremely narrow. Uh, heterosexual people are attracted to people that they identify as you know, the opposite sex and, and uh, otherwise, you know, all the different sexual uh, target preferences. That's right. Well, for non-sadistic pedophiles, they have a preference for having sex with children, which leads to this new internet debate around whether or not pedophilia should be considered a quote-unquote sexual orientation. I see. Have you heard of this before? I hadn't heard of that particular debate. But, but the way I worded it, you could see like, oh yeah, sure. I, I guess if you word it that way, it, well, it's tec- it 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 technically is right. Like meaning, if if you're going by certain definitions of certain words, uh, you are oriented to a specific type of thing, so that is a sexual orientation, right? <laughs> uh, or sexual orientation is you are orienting your sexuality toward a particular direction, yes. you know. And so, uh, in the base level, uh, you could consider pedophilia, sexual orientation. Yeah. However, this debate has is so politicized that I, I, I can't really say much about, I can't, I, I'm not going to call it a sexual orientation because people will say things, it's sort of like if I were to say, hey, you know, all lives matter. You know, I do, do I believe that all lives matter? Yeah. Yes, but if you say it, it means a lot more than what it sa- sounds like. Right. Yeah, I see what you're saying. To so, say pedophilia is a sexual orientation is uh, not just saying that you objectively identify it or classify it as a, it's it's actually a political stance by some people that proposes that it should be legitimized, like NAMBLA. Yeah, like basically, it, I could see how someone who is. Uh, fighting for their rights on a particular part of the spectrum of sexual orientation 
might feel like calling a pedophile a uh, type of sexual orientation uh, groups them in the same bucket. Exactly. So, Berto, are these people evil? Answer that. Uh, okay. So, um, I actually do have my own personal definition of evil in the real world okay. uh, because I don't, you know, I don't believe in a. Uh, we, I have no evidence for a universal good and evil. You know, there might be, but I have no evidence. So I could say that the word evil has no real significance. But I actually feel like we we can probably apply one, and I choose to apply one. For me, the definition of evil is someone who is aware not only of the consequences of their actions, but the what the meaning of their actions are, and they still choose to make take actions that inflict. Uh, great amounts of pain uh, on one or many people, right? And when they do that over and over, like I would categorize those people as evil. It doesn't mean that I think the devil is with them, whatever. I just call them that person's evil. I also am not saying nothing about their mental diagnoses. So I don't put the standard non-sadistic pedophile, as you described it, as in that bucket as evil. I, I, I don't do that because I feel like they are... Uh, in some ways, not fully in control of their of their uh, impulses, and um, they might not have enough context because they might have had enough abuse to not fully, you know, be aware or agree with the context around what their actions are doing. Um, so, do I think it's wrong? And it, of course, they should they they need to not be doing that, and it it should never be uh, excusable. I do, and that's because the as soon as your rights start infringing on other per- people's rights. You know, you have to draw the line, and these anyone who's a minor doesn't, you know, has the right to not be um, sexualized in that way and predated on like like that. So I do think it's absolutely wrong, no excuses. But I just personally don't put them in the bucket of evil. Whereas actually, um, someone who is uh, doing something like you know, uh, for whatever reasons, grabbing children or innocent people and subjecting them to violence and murdering them and all these kind of things. Yeah, I book, bucket them as evil. And I could be wrong, but th- that's how I do it. There's no right or wrong. It's, it's a age-old yeah. question, what is evil, that anyone is free to define for themselves. Um, let me uh, expand these categories a little bit okay. or add uh, another set of criteria that applies to all three of these. So... Some of the sadists, some of the sexual sadists, and some of the non-sadistic pedophiles. So to back up a little bit, the sadists don't necessarily have a sexual attraction to children. They just like to hurt people, and children are easy targets. Yeah, The non-sadistic pedophile is someone who has empathy uh, or has the capacity... It doesn't derive pleasure from suffering yeah. and happens to be super attracted to children in the way that everyone's super attracted to whoever they're super attracted to. But here, here are some other things to think about, which is that regardless of which category put it, whether you're sadist or, not, or, or, a, or a non-sadistic pedophile, some of these people have capacity for empathy and some do not. Mm-hmm. So a sadist... There are some sadists who actually can have empathy for other people. I see. And there are some non-sadistic pedophiles who actually don't have any empathy for other people. So yeah. it's not like non-sadistic pedophiles are automatically empathetic. Right. You know right. what I mean? Uh, are they more likely to be empathetic? Yes. But, um, but that's just something to think about. Another is that 
some of the sadists and some of the non-sadistic pedophiles are aware that they have a problem, and some are not aware that they yeah, have a problem. Okay. Um, also, some, regardless of what category you put them into, are successful in suppressing their urges, and some are not. You know, you can take a, a sexual sadist who takes tremendous pleasure from the witnessing or committing a rape upon a child or an adult, and either they don't want to hurt other people because they have a baseline understanding that it's wrong, or they don't want to get in trouble. Sure. And so they suppress for their entire life all of their urges to do that in reality, and so they just fantasize about it, or right. they just look at pictures that have, you know, like there's a lot of rape in anime. Yeah. <laughs> you know. It, it, Legend of the Overfiend. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. It's, and so uh, now, and there will be non-sadistic pedophiles who don't suppress their urges, yeah. you know, and vice versa. So, so that's another thing to think about. Um, and again, some will manage to just fantasize and some will actually commit crimes and some both. So that's another thing to think about. You know, when we're thinking about evil, I think that should be considered, right? Yeah, and, and I, I guess I should clarify one more thing. I, I'm trying to... I'm trying to be pragmatic with the use of words. So uh, if, if I'm going to label things, I like to think of like, what's the purpose of the label, right? And if I used evil for things like, okay, let's take someone like Pablo Escobar or, or uh, someone who killed millions of people or something like that. Stalin. Uh, Stalin, things like that. And I said, okay, I'm going to group that individual in the same bucket as someone who which is horrible, but someone who, uh, what do you call it when you indoctrinate, like you... Uh, brainwash? You, no, not you brainwash. But anyways, you, they recruited, they um, groomed, they groomed, say, five boys over the span of 20 years, and they did sexually abuse them and stuff like that. Is that horrible? Absolutely wrong. Did they ruin those boys' lives? Absolutely. I just don't find the use of having that same bucket be that big that I'm going to put someone who murdered 6 million, 10 million, 20 million people in the same bucket as someone who affected, you know, those, and that's it. Now, to the extent of like, oh, some of those people did it more maliciously, and some of those people actually murdered one of the boys to try to keep, like, sure, and then it gets into all sorts of gray areas. But I was trying to answer, is there some sort of inherent thing that as soon as you have pedophilic feelings or whatever, you're an evil person? And I think that that's not as useful. So I, I, I that's that's where it is. Okay. Yeah. Right. So again, we have... People who are sadists who take pleasure in harming people and they just happen to target children. And then you have people who don't take pleasure in harming others, but they're very attracted to children. Right. And, and they will naturally be ashamed of that. Every non-sadistic pedophile is, uh, well, most of them are, the vast majority of them are ashamed of it at the very least, and they know that they shouldn't be doing it. Right. I mean, this is that um, to catch a predator thing, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, these are those guys. Yeah. Uh, they, they have a version of it where they're very much attracted to, to minors. Yep. They're often portrayed as basically scumbags, but a lot of them have... Now, some of them might be sadists too, yeah. but from the looks on a lot of their faces, uh, my impression, and after interviewing some of them a little longer, a lot of these men, and they're, they've never done it to women, have they? Oh, the Catch a Predator? Yeah. I've never seen an episode like that, but they and, might. Anyway, all these guys are 
in my estimation, probably in the category of the non, they're not sadistic. They're mm-hmm. not, they don't take pleasure in the harming of other people, but they are very much attracted to minors. They're very yeah. much, these guys are, they're, they, they're typically, uh, they they're typically responding to someone online who's like twelve or something. Is that right? In the teenage years, but yeah, or you know something like that. But it's usually not fifteen. It's usually like it's usually like young. Creepy best. Yeah, know. like it. In my mind, it's usually I it's see. like decidedly young. Okay. You know? It's not like she's seventeen or something. Oh, you know? I see. Okay. Um, but anyway, which would still be a problem, but 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 some seventeen. Anyway, the point is is that uh, uh, there's there's so you have. You have non-sadistic people yeah. who want to have sex with kids, and then you have sadistic people who might have actually pedophilia as well, but they just want to harm. And of those people, you have some some of these people that will act on it, and you have some of these people who won't. You have some yeah. of these people who have empathy and some who don't. You have some people who know that they have a problem, and some people just think like the Nambla people are just like, I don't have a problem. Having sex with kids is normal. you know. Yeah. And so there's a wide range of... Of people in the in this in this bucket that we're throwing all of pedophiles, yeah, you know? yeah, and it needs to be considered when we consider each case, yeah. And for example, um, you know, priesthood, Catholic priesthood, is an interesting thing to look at. Uh, you know, I grew up in a Catholic country, so I I grew up around a lot of uh, churches and a lot of priests, and I went to a Catholic school, and we had you know priests there and all of these things. Um, and it's no mystery how the incidents became so high over the years, right? Because for millennia, they were prohibited from having sex or getting married, right? That was the, the word. It's like you, you can't have sex with anyone, let alone a woman, right? Like, uh, and along the lines, who knows how long ago, probably from the very beginning, some of them were like, oh, screw this. I have to have sex with someone. And they started abusing the boys. And then those boys become abusive, and then and then it perpetuates itself. But but these are usually in, in historical terms, priesthoods. Uh, they usually were educated. They read a lot. They were more educated than the average person normally back back then, anyways. So and you could imagine this sort of like mentorship thing, where it's like, well, you know, I'm I'm a priest, and I'm going to mentor you, and I'm, yeah, I'm going to have sex with you, but you know, mostly I'm mentoring you, right? And you could just imagine this thing be, becoming rationalized and sort of implicitly accepted and turn, like, turn the other way so you don't really think about it. And over many, many years, then it becomes something that, of course, they're going to cover it up because they're, they're looking at it like, well, I, I know it seems monstrous, but you don't understand. These boys, they get a lot of mentorship from these people. And you, you talk to the priest, and the priest seems like the nicest person ever. And, and they might like, be. And they might be, right? But they still go ahead and, and victimize the boys because they were victimized a lot of times. And right. So in those instances, they're not sadistic. They are. They were groomed as children to and abused in such a way that they they uh, developed a preference for young children based on their based on the fact that they were a young child when they were in those instances, sexualized, yeah. and so they might have tremendous sympathy. And they might, uh, you know, have a, a big capacity for altruism and taking care of other people, but they have this this preference, and they have an institution yeah. that supports the the hiding of it and yeah. the justification for for harming young yeah. young boys and the insular nature of it of just like, well, you don't, you know, you're not in the church, you don't know, or stay out of our business. We we have. 
you know, our own rules. And right. Da, 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 da. Oh, and by the way, I am in no way saying that there aren't sadistic priests and who and, knows how many. And, there, and there are. Absolutely. Uh, you got to watch the uh, the new documentary about – it's on Netflix. Oh, man. I, I think I did a whole episode on this documentary and I can't remember what it's called. Is it about a British no, it's it's about a, a Baltimore. Oh, I see. And there's it's about the '60s. Man, it's it's Netflix, and this this nun is murdered, and then from there, this this whole thing unravels about oh. p- about priests and like a a whole sex ring of these okay. of these men in this community and all these young Catholic girls being uh, groomed. Oh my gosh. and sexually abused and. And boys, actually, too, but uh, and and how like thirty or forty or I don't know, maybe like fifty years later, they're they're still fighting the fight. You know what I mean? What I saw was something about it was some some British one of those all bo- all all boys schools, uh. and it was like in the eighteen hundreds, maybe nineteen hundreds or something. Yeah, it was probably nineteen hundreds. And they would abuse the shit out of the boys sexually, physically, everything. And they there would be dead there would be dead boys buried in the school grounds like and like this was real yeah it was so horrid it was like oh my god yeah so anyway the 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 point that I want to make here is whenever we get into talks about uh, pedophilia again we want to say up front that it's it damages people it's immoral it's it's a it's criminal these uh, acts should be seen as such and at the same time. We need to be more realistic and more observant and more nuanced in our observation or our understanding of the people who commit these acts. Both men and women commit these acts, and there's a wide variety of, of people. In the same way that if you just looked at violence, right, if you just looked at how many people punch somebody, right? Right. There are some times where it's committed by a sadist, and there are some times when it's committed by someone who is very scared. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that pedof- pedophiles are scared, but my point is, is like, we don't look at punching someone in the face as being committed by one type of person. You right. know, we, we understand that there's a lot of different routes to that crime. Well, there's a lot of different r- routes to the crime of, of pedophilia, and uh, the reason. Now, you as a listener are free to decide for yourself how much sympathy you want to have for these people. That that's not my point. My point is not, hey, let's all love these people. That you can if you want to, but that's not my point. My point is is that if we're going to actually solve the fucking problem, yeah, then we have to understand the problem, and sure. we have to stop acting like. This is; these are evil people who should yeah. just be shunted from society. Uh, because the reason why is when we have this very narrow definition, there, in a lot of ways, these are the most evil people in our society. Sure, you, you match up someone who murdered somebody with someone who sexually abused a, a baby. In my experience, most people will point to the sexual abuser and sure. say that person is a hundred times more evil than the person who murdered someone. Sure. Now, I'm not going to gauge sin, but my yeah. point is is that when we create our socially constructed notion that is extremely narrow and shaming and, and 
evilizing of a particular group of people, then those who actually want help for their problem or those who can be detected at a young age and would benefit from some help from society and from their family and from their friends and from clinicians and from the media uh, aren't getting any help. It's stigmatized. They will never say anything about it. Right. Yeah, of course. They'll never go to a therapist and say, "Um, so I'm really attracted to kids. Because most therapists, my guess, would not react well to that. Can you imagine a teenager today in this day and age saying to someone, you know, I've I've been having these feelings where I'm attracted to like five-year-olds. Right. Like, that would be their their social death. Right. Barely any of them can say they're sexually attracted to to, anything. Yeah, to to anything, uh, let alone uh, someone of the same gender, let alone alone children. And so, and that's uh, our fault. We are stupid and we have created that and we need to stop that. Now, this doesn't mean we should say, you know, fling open the doors. Everything is is good and everything should be accepted. No, No, of course not. The point is, is like, we need to say, hey, uh, pedophiles, people people who have this problem, there is help available to you. Right. We can help. We have ways that might actually work to solve your problem. For instance, with support and with understanding and skill building, you can act. There are people, documented cases that I've actually seen. Um, there's a there's a a YouTube documentary I think about one of these guys who has who has is very interested in having sex with with children, but has managed their entire life to never act on it. I see, because they have elaborate systems of sublimating or you know displacing or fantasizing or or just saying look i need to really just not be sexual i need yeah. to not expose myself or there's you know there's various different systems you know there are people who are addicted to gambling that manage to never gamble you know there are people who are have the who who you know there's 14 year olds that i've talked to i said by the way so both your parents and all four of your grandparents are raging alcoholics. You probably have the biological disposition yeah. to develop that. I recommend you be very careful around alcohol. They go their entire life never touching alcohol. Mm-hmm. So uh, now, whether or not they actually have a propensity, who knows? But anyway, the point is, is that there's a lot we can do with 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 help and with education and with skills. You know, there's a lot we can do. Even to sadists, by the way. Okay. Uh, you, you know, we tend to say, oh, sadists, they're evil. No, I mean, again, what's evil? But the point is, is that the sadist doesn't want to go to jail, at the very least, right? Yeah. The sadist is like, well, I don't want to go to jail. Okay. Uh, and then you're like, you talk with them, they're like, yeah, but man, do I get pleasure from from watching people suffer. Right. Okay, how are we going to deal with this now? <laughs> what do you want to do? Well, I don't want to go to jail. Okay. Uh, do you care about other human beings? Not really. Okay. Well, let's avoid going to jail. <laughs> yeah. How can you get your jollies or uh, wean yourself off of this pleasure and maybe increase pleasure in other areas so that you ge- have general well-being? You right. know, take me, for instance, just as an analogy. I love eating ice cream. If I could eat ice cream, I would eat it every day. I would go to Menchie's. I would go to frozen yogurt. I call them candy buckets because <laughs> I, I just – like I, you can't see the ice cream anymore because I just cover it with candy. You know? Right. 
I love that. If I could do that every day, I would. The last time I had Menchie's was probably, I don't know, like two years ago or something. Right. Because it's, it's not good for me, and yeah. I, I have managed to avoid that. Now, it's not the same thing. but No, of course. But if you were going to a therapist talking about how it's causing problems for you, again, not on the same level at all, but you're saying, like, look, I'm gaining weight. I, I don't feel good about myself. And they're like, well, okay, well, what are you trying to do to not eat ice cream? Well, I just moved next door to a Menchie's, and I go buy it three times a day. <laughs> then they might say, or someone might tell you, maybe that's not the best for you. Yeah. Then maybe you might want to try moving away, right. living somewhere different, maybe not walking by Menchie's. Right. And habit is a big thing. Uh, yeah. There was, I was in a habit for a while there where I would, I would have a Menchie's craving about once a week. Yeah, where I would just I would and Menchie's is open for those of you who don't have Menchie's it's a yogurt place with candy <laughs> and you add all these top frozen yogurt yeah <laughs> and a lot of the there's a there was a Menchie's on Queen Anne that I think was open until midnight and so wow. like you if I had a hankering at 11.30 I could just zip right up there and, and, and be walking around Queen Anne Hill with, with a good Menchie's tub in my hands and scarfing that thing down so uh, the point is is that there are therapeutic techniques and actual just notions out there in our society of ways of managing your impulses so that your life doesn't go down the tubes. A question. Um, it seems to me that there are more, uh, a lot more people that would engage in pedophilia than there are people that would randomly murder people. And, and maybe I'm wrong about that statistic, but... Uh, well, uh, meaning... What do you mean by randomly uh, murder uh, No, I shouldn't have said that. What I'm, here's what I'm trying to get at. Um, I got this impression, and maybe it's uh, maybe I'm projecting a little bit. My sexual impulses, when they are there, meaning when I feel horny or whatever, it's a strong feeling. And granted, I'm not a teenager anymore, but even still, it's pretty strong. I get this feeling like some of these folks get compulsive about it and they, it's almost like they, they get into a state where it's really hard for them to hold themselves back because it's obsessive and they're thinking about it constantly well, and constantly yeah, and constantly. It's a, good, it's a good question. It's not well-researched one, uh -huh. because of the stigma and blah, blah, blah. But there's, there's a few possibilities here. One is, is that if you are denied your sexual outlet – from day one, you, you could imagine it developing into a bit of a compulsion or yeah. upset, or you could imagine it developing, you could imagine developing some pressure behind your motivation. You know, uh, there's that. The other is that maybe the pedophiles that we managed to catch and, and study are those who had the, the most compulsive, uh, nature regarding it, you know? I see. Uh, so, I mean, as let's again, let's sort of separate ourselves from whether or not it's evil. Uh, we can say that abusing children is wrong; it's immoral; it's bad, and those who perpetrate it are should be ashamed of themselves, and they all know better, and they should not do that. Um, but uh, imagine if we just flipped society on its head and said, everyone who wants to have, or let's just say. Everyone who wants to have sex, regardless of who you want to target, you can't do that anymore. Right. Everyone in America, uh, you can't do it. And keep society the same. Right. Ads, uh, porn on the internet. Like, uh, you can't 
you can't do it. In fact, you can't even look at porn on the internet because you'll get caught if you look at any kind of depiction of sex. Right. The only thing you can do is think about it because no one knows what you're thinking. Right. And you, so all you heterosexual people out there, all your breeder acts are off the table. All you gay people out there, all of your gay acts are off. The, you can't engage. Right. How long would it be before a certain percentage of people would break that would break that law yeah. or break that, you know, social mandate. How many of those people would, after 10 years, right. develop a little bit of a, an issue <laughs> regarding yeah. course, how yeah. badly they want this to happen? You right. know? So I guess that the flip side of that is, uh, let's say we, you know, we associate that with uh, a compulsion, but maybe we're wrong because it's only, like you said, maybe we only catch the compulsion. The the flip side is, if someone is being given the benefit of the doubt on uh, that they're going to try not to drink alcohol uh, because they have a problem, right? Uh, it can carry risk because they might break that, drink, drive, and kill someone, right? Like we know that that's a risk, uh, and I think a lot of us feel like. When you, if you give a pedophile the benefit of the doubt, but then they break down, the price to be paid is a child has now been abused. Right. Yeah, I'm glad you're bringing this up. I don't know what model of of addressing this problem we should have. Yeah. But but we're clearly not doing a good job now. Clearly not. Now maybe the way we address this again, whenever I go into the zone of let's look at these people as they are yeah. and recognize that some of them are controlling it and some of them are not. There's this notion of just like, so you just, you know, so you just let them off the hook. Do nothing. Yeah. And it's like, no, it's the opposite. Yeah. We're doing nothing now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We are doing nothing now. The only thing we are doing is waiting for the one <laughs> person who happens to be reported. Yep. And then, and then we do something about it, right. and, and we lock them up and keep them away from, or we put them on a registry or something like that. Yeah, that is not addressing the problem because we stigmatize sex, sex in general. We stigmatize sexual abuse so badly that none of the perpetrators are stepping forward and saying, "By the way, I have a problem." That's uh, right. And very few of the victims are coming forward. You know, how many gambling addicts come forward and say, "I have a problem"? You know, there's a a percentage yeah. where they're like, "Eesh," I and that's still stigmatized. I got again, yeah, it's still stigmatized. But how many, how many gambling addicts go to gambling and addicts anonymous? How many of them uh, tell their friends, "I have a gambling right. problem"? It's like, hard. Okay, <laughs> how many pedophiles come forward and say, "Uh, I got a problem"? Yeah. You know, very, very few. And if they get, let's say they get caught and they go to jail, right? Yeah. Because it's such a stigma, first of all, they might have been abused in jail as a result, right? Yeah. But because it's such a stigma, think about it as you're coming out of jail. If they ask you like, which is such a ridiculous question, but like, are you going to do it again, right? Like they ask you, you, it's, you can't say, I might, right? Like, that can't be your answer. Right, because they'll, they'll put you back in. Right. So you're going to have to say, no, 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 I'm done with like, that's, I realized how horrible that was. Right. And you probably really mean it. Yeah. But it hasn't solved anything. Right. Now, having said all that, there's a whole system of uh, uh, rehabilitation for mm -hmm. sexual perpetrators that has seen some success. Uh, not tremendous success, but, but some success along these lines. But again, these are people who have the 
uh, who are ha- you know a very small percentage of perpetrators who have been caught by the yeah. by someone and then convicted and then uh, sent to these programs as a punishment to some extent, and and some of them, uh, from what I understand, are very interested in these programs. They're like, thank God, yeah, I have this program that helps me not do this because I don't want to do it again. You know, right? What if folks felt like, look, you're right. Let's say magically, we all agree one day. All right, we're going to stop stigmatizing it. We're going to say, like, man, I'm so sorry you have those feelings. That's too bad. It really is too bad. But here's the thing. Uh, we have to chemically castrate you. Well, uh, that's not uh, probably constitutional, but it is potentially constitutional <laughs> to uh, say, look, we are going to uh, help you. I see. And we're going to protect you from harm. But we're also going to protect you from harming other people because we know, according to research, right. based on your, uh, you know, what we found and what you report, that uh, there's a, you know, a, a percentage chance that you're going to harm someone. And the, the effects of that harm are so great that even though you are, you might be one of those people who manages to never do it, we can't take that risk. We can't take the risk, right. It's uh, like the, the example I was thinking about is, imagine you had a sexual proclivity for pressing a nuclear button. Right. Right? Exactly. And, and it's not your fault. Like, you were abused as a child to press nuclear buttons or yeah. whatever. So now you're a 40-year-old man, and you just want to press that button. Yeah. And we give you the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Well, well, well the analogy would be, would you let that dude in the White House? No, of course. You know what I mean? You'd be yeah. like, uh, keep him away from the White House, even though the chance of him yeah. encountering the button is yeah. extremely low. Now, of course, that's a ridiculous extreme example. But the, but the, if but, you, so, so yeah. in a utopic world, imagine a society in which we didn't have stigma around this. Yeah. And we, identif- and we had a way of identifying it, and people could just freely say, oh, yeah, you know what? I'm 14. I, I think I might actually be attracted to children. Yes. Um, you know, no stigma. They just say it, and everyone's like, oh, okay, well, we have, a, we have a system that will talk with you about that. Because, unfortunately, the one thing is you can't do that. But right, but so, we're not. But we're not blaming you. We're well, not. So 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 a, a a specialist or a group of specialists come in and empathically and non-judgmentally say, "I'm really glad you came forward." And by the way, let me tell you what you're facing here, and we'll yeah. we'll we'll look at this. Yeah. Um, you have you have what we call blah 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 blah, and if you don't engage in this treatment, here's what's going to happen. That's right. Is you are going to uh, run the risk that you're going to harm someone with these impulses. And um, you don't want to do that. Of course, the 14 year old is like, no, I don't want to do that. And, and that will lead to ongoing damage for them. And as a secondary consequence, you'll go to jail and you'll be locked up. You don't want that to happen. Again, no stigma. They're free to come forward. And, yeah. and they're just like, oh, okay. It'd be similar to be like, um, by the way, I think I have diabetes. Oh, yeah. okay. Um, now, we have, we have a whole system of care. It comes in and says, uh, here's, here's what you need to do. And right. no one wants to be treated for diabetes. Of course not. No one wants to have that thing that is you know, permanently no. attached to their body. Um, but but they, there are consequences if you don't. And, and there are 10-year-olds that have diabetes who are like, you know, who need to be counseled into, yeah. and, and they lay out the consequences. Imagine if it was stigmatized. Like, you can't tell anyone you have diabetes. Right. Uh, and, and, then, and then these people grow up, they drive a car, they have a, they have a seizure, they pass out, and they run over a kid. Do you know like, what, well, I mean? what happened? Well, they have diabetes. They can never tell anyone. Not that diabetes is the same, as, but course, you get the picture. But, but, but there are people that would say, oh, 
wait a minute. In fact, I would have been one of those uh, 30 years ago, I don't know, 20 years ago. We say, what? So what about homosexuality? Yeah. Couldn't you counsel the the 14-year-old and say, oh, blah, blah. But of course, I know my own answer, which is like, wait, when you are a consenting adult, yeah. and you're attracted to other consenting adults in many consenting adult ways, and you're not harming them, harming others, yeah. there is no argument left. Right. The difference, and it is the key monumental difference, why these things should never be conflated, is because we're talking about underage people that have not fully developed, are not consenting, can be re- irreparably harmed. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, utopic world, uh, I wonder what we could do if we were, and I've never even ha- had these thoughts until we have gone down this road. It's just like, man, wouldn't that be awesome, right? How many, now, you some perpetrators, particularly the sadistic kind, would slip through the cracks because they'd be like, they, they, would would re- they wouldn't report it, you yeah. know what I mean? But how many people could be turned around? Now, here's the other thing. They have actually managed to therapize people to the point where they have diminished attraction towards children and increased wow. attraction for other people. Uh, it's not universally mm-hmm. uh, effective, but... You know, you can, especially early intervention, you can start to reprogram yourself sexually. Interesting. You can uh, connect certain things, like uh, just a a very um, uh, simple example is you take someone who, and you, I don't know, just an experiment, you want to become attracted to birds, or just the picture of birds. You want to associate pictures with birds oh, with sexuality. Wait, keep talking about birds. <laughs> Not that you want to have sex with birds, but... Like uh, bird dresses. If you're a if you're a straight man, uh, bird. You want bird dresses to turn you on or okay. something. So you simply masturbate, and oh, while you're I looking see. at the things that turn you on at this moment, you you match birds with that. I see. Okay. And then it won't be long. I mean, especially if you do that for a couple of years before you see a, a a bird on a on a you know a picture or something. And you get a boner. You know, it, okay. our, our brains are programmable like that. That's how I developed my donut fetish. <laughs> yeah. And so the uh, other, uh, the reverse is true for, for some people is you can deprogram by uh, matching certain things that you are attracted to right now with things that you are really not attracted uh, to. You know, like think of things you're not sexually attracted to, right? Like, yeah. Like, feces and uh, and vomit and wor- flies, worms and flies. flies. Yeah, and then so you cover uh, whatever you are attracted uh, to in all that stuff. Oh, uh, no, you're putting thoughts in my head. Stop it. <laughs> There's a possibility that uh, right. over time your brain will at least have a diminished attraction, right. you know, to that sort of thing. I'm very, I'm a very visual person, so anything you say starts forming itself in my brain like in virtual reality. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, by the way, so you you said something that was really interesting, which is that um, they're well, having. Before you ask that question, let's okay. take a break. Just chiming in here, a reminder for everyone to go to talkspace.com and use the promo code Kirk to get a discount if you're looking for online counseling. Online counseling is a, especially at Talkspace right now, it's a totally legit way of, of getting therapy. They only were they only hire fully licensed therapists, meaning that. They are not recent grads. They are fully licensed, and they've been vetted. They've been 
they've been trained in the online platform. And the cool thing about this Talkspace uh, sort of format is you get contact with your therapist every day, which is, you know, pretty cool. And so if you're looking for therapy or you just want to give it a try, uh, go to Talkspace.com, use the promo code Kirk, which gives you a discount. Also, it, when you use the promo code Kirk, it also signals to Talkspace to let them know that this sponsorship is worth it. So we really want them to become an ongoing sponsor. So if you're, if you're, you know, interested and you just want to check it out, please do so now go to talkspace.com. Use the promo code Kirk. Okay. We're back from the break. What's your question? Thanks for answering that. That was great. Um, (laughs) no, no, you said something that was really Ah, interesting. Break humor. It's so funny. (laughs) You said that they're starting to have success with, uh, some of these techniques to, uh, to maybe reprogram, right? Um, which is really interesting. And then you also mentioned that sadistic folks may not report. So, you know, but going back to my ridiculous analogy about someone who might be attracted to pressing a nuclear button. And let's say it's literally like, this is the button that will destroy the world, right? And would we prefer that people come out as early as possible in their life and let us know that that might be something that's a possibility with them? Yeah. Wouldn't we want to know rather yeah. than find out after the fact when we wouldn't be able to? Right. Right? Like, and I know, again, it's stupid extreme, but the, but the point is like, you better tell us. Please tell us. Yeah. We would encourage it. It'd be the single most encouraged thing in society. Like, yeah. if you have this proclivity, please let us know. We will, in fact, you will be aggrandized. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and of course, never let, you will never be allowed to press the button. But. Right. <laughs> yeah. Imagine if we had that around a lot of things like this. Yeah. And, and, and we said also, we have ways of helping you so that you can live a life that isn't filled with secrecy and shame and strife and criminal consequences. Yes. We, we have a technique that might help you. Uh, it could even, maybe even a utopic society, you would have communities that didn't have any children. Yeah. Like, like communities that don't have any alcohol or something. Yeah. You live in a, uh, you know, a gated community yeah. <laughs> that, there's not a single child in sight. You can't. There's no one to abuse. Yeah. Uh, you know. Again, it. You. You can't imagine our society doing such a thing. Right. But if we didn't have stigma and we allowed for flexibility to societal needs, uh, these sorts of options could be at least uh, contemplated. You know, yeah. rather than what we're doing now, which is. Waiting until someone abuses, I think the average abuser, by the time they get caught, abuses like dozens of of people. And and so right right now, because of our stupidity, we wait until someone abuses dozens of children. And finally gets called out. Finally gets called out. And then we pounce uh, after the fact. How wonderful is that, people? We're idiots. Okay. So let's get back to the patron's questions. Uh, she says, I'm wondering if you've ever had clients who were pedophiles or dealt with something similar. Yes, I've absolutely worked with, with pedophiles. It's not a specialty of mine. In fact, probably, I don't know, I'd probably say like 10 to 20 out of my you know 30,000 clients have, have uh, been pedophiles. And the ones that I've worked with, uh, some of them I would guess were slightly sadistic, but most of them were not in, in my head, you know, when I think mm-hmm. about it. Um, but again, it's not a specialty of mine. I've also worked with pedophiles that I didn't know were pedophiles. Right. I've worked with pedophiles who, uh, in the midst of treatment, 
were caught, and then I was told. Oh, I see. <laughs> By the way, this person was a pedophile. Who, who tells you the authorities or uh, or family or <clears throat> I see. something? Yeah. Um, specialists are the best sorts of people to work with this sort of thing because it's it is a pretty specialized field. Uh, she also asked, "To what extent can we help them?" Uh, I think we've already kind of kind of answered that. Uh, you you can do trauma recovery. We haven't talked about that yet, but um, all the things we've talked about uh, can help them. Research shows that it's not by any means always effective. Uh, I can't remember the exact um, recidiv. So this is a hard thing to to study. So you you mandate treatment to these people who were caught and then the only, and then you release them into the wild. And the only way you know for sure if it worked or not is whether or not they get caught by the law because, oh my God, because right. they're not going to come back to the treatment center or on a survey say, yep, I'm still abused. No one's caught me yet, but you know, <laughs> yeah. so, so the ability to, to determine the, the, uh, because it's, it's, leg- it's, you know, it, it's theoretically possible that these programs are have a zero percent effectiveness rate because yeah. all the people who manage to uh, abuse a, a good percentage of them manage to never get caught. So, so it's hard to study this, but right. I can't remember the exact uh, recidivism rates. But I, I, from my memory, it's somewhere around fifty percent or something. So, or maybe thirty percent or something. It, it was it was a fairly good chunk, but obviously not not as good as we want it to be. Right? Sure. Because yeah. if you're letting out even like 5% that are going to do it again, you know, that's that's creating a lot of victims in the world. That's right. right. Uh, another thing that occurs to me is um, there's a set of education that is never done in in young ages to to kids about their, bo- their body boundaries and about like how to deal with when they're being asked to not yeah. to do something they don't want to do. Well, some and, some kids are educated, uh, but not like by their parents, maybe. But it's not like um, some schools will talk about it for sure. Okay. Yeah, but not enough. Okay, maybe nowadays. You're right. Maybe now it's obviously it's been a lot of time. When I was going through school, I never heard a single word about it. Yeah, like the first sex stuff I ever heard was like in seventh grade. We had a class about human sexuality. They never talked about any of this stuff. Right. right, right. So, but maybe things have changed a lot. Right, and so you're thinking, how can we catch these people earlier? And 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 I'm talking about like, even at a young young age, like maybe four. Obviously, you don't want to talk about sex and what's, but but if I had known, if I had been given tools about like, hey, you know, your body, there are some boundaries, blah blah blah. I don't know if, but I might have been more likely to push back feel that something was wrong that I should talk to an adult about. Maybe I would have felt safe about talking to an adult. Yeah. Like, you know, there might have been, who knows, more ability for me to do something about yeah. it. Yeah. As an analogy, let's say the 12-year-old babysitter slapped you across the face 10 times every time, every time <laughs> right. she saw you. Right. What would you have done? That is something I knew that wasn't right. <laughs> you would have gone right to your right. grandma and been like, uh, by the way, Consuelo is like, <laughs> is like punching me in the face every time. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, maybe that's that would have been my fetish. <laughs> and, and, uh, and you know, and be, this is a indirect outgrowth of our stupidity right. in our societies, Colombia included, in which we stigmatize and shameize and like not talk about sex. By to, the way, this was in New York. <laughs> oh, it was it was? It oh, was okay. But All not right. to say that you know, it's 
Oh. Yeah. Um, was she Hispanic? Was yeah. she? Oh, yes. she was a Consuela. Yeah. So, yes. Consuela? Is that, a, is that a name? Consuela? Sure. You can have it. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, I guess Consuela is a name. Yeah. Is it? I never knew a single Consuela in my entire <laughs> life. <laughs> but yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, you know, it's not racist because I, I'm because Japanese. Because you're some non-white. <laughs> yeah, uh, so I can, I can, right, I can right, do right, that right. stuff, you know. <laughs> uh, okay, another question. <laughs> that means because I'm on the sexual spectrum, I can make fun of other sexual orientations. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, uh, next question. Is it? Isn't racism fun? It is. It's great. <laughs> Especially nowadays. <laughs> yeah, so fun. Yeah. All right. Next question from Anonymous Patron. Is there a psychological reason behind why pedophiles are pedophiles? Uh, uh, the, the very short answer is we have no idea because we don't understand the brain. And we barely understand. We have like associations and studies and stuff. So, But there does seem to be a pretty strong connection between uh, people who are attracted and, and sadists for that matter, but also just people who are attracted to children and, and earlier uh, abuse of, of any kind, yeah. uh, whether it's sexual or otherwise. Uh, so, and, you know, and it seems logical, right? Yeah. Given, given the way that the model of sexuality, and again, that model is only part of the model. There's, sure. there's other factors that play into it, you know, because according to that model that I said earlier, uh, it's uh, uh, we're not as blanks. Well, I guess I did say there's there we're born with a little bit of the image on the painting already, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, uh, because I don't want to make it seem like we're born and anything that happens to us will point us in that direction. No, but look for for one thing, obviously there are nerve endings that have more of a stimulant effect than yeah. others. Yeah. Like even just starting there, let alone when the actions start getting associated with those nerve endings yeah. and then so forth. Right. So, yeah. And then our final question is, is it nature or nurture or both? Uh, the, again, the short answer is both, uh, but it's, it's a very good uh, amount of, of nurture. Yeah. Uh, the, the notion that people are, are born sadistic pedophiles is uh, not – my gestalt from looking at all the research. Sure. Uh, can it happen? Absolutely. I mean, any uh, human instinct or drive could be a, a result of aberrant genetics or or the bell curve of possibilities. Uh, you know, can, can someone be born a cow? No. You, you can't have a human come out of the womb a cow. I know. I saw an article the other <laughs> <laughs> You can't have a human come out as a as a block of granite. Do you know what I mean? There's, yep. there, but, yep. but in the bell curve of possibilities, uh, you know, in the, in the far reaches of the bell curve, is it possible for the genetics to lead to uh, the, the foundation that will lead to uh, even if the child is not abused and, and is raised right, perfectly right. well, to have the epigenetics interactions to develop a strong urge to have sex with children, you know, I Probably. can I can imagine that being yeah. true. Um, the the last thing I'll say here uh, in terms of uh, data is there's a I think a Radio Lab episode, a podcast episode, in which I think it's or This American Life, can't remember which one, in which a man had a, I think, a, like some sort of seizure disorder, and he had uh, a portion of his brain removed in order to, I can't, 
uh, for some reason he had he had brain surgery and they took a part of his brain out. And he, after that surgery, developed an intense pedophilia. Oh. Like an intense, whoa, a compulsive sexual attraction to children, and within like I don't know a, a year or two, was caught by the feds because of his on wow. his online picture behavior. And he didn't have it before. And he didn't have it. I mean, it's hard to know, but there's a lot of evidence pointing to it. He didn't have it before. So you remove a part of the brain, and this this pedophilia emerges. Huh. So what does that tell us, right? It it says that pedophilia could be a brain disorder. Like you could yeah. have a a wire uh uh either deficit or something that isn't wired correctly. Which or could something. still have been triggered by abuse and by other things. Right. Um but it 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 puts this and that's the whole episode yeah. what it was about was like what is evil, yeah. right? I mean, because if you just heard this, if you just saw the snippet, like man is caught with tens of thousands of images right. of, of children, you would be like, oh my God, he's a terrible person. He's to be locked up. But then you hear the broader story and, he, and he's like this nice guy, normal guy. Yeah. He has a surgery and he has some cognitive uh, deficits because you take a chunk out of your brain, it's yeah. going to happen. And he develops this thing. And of course, he's so ashamed of it. He doesn't tell anyone about it. Yeah. The story was more complicated than that, but it is an interesting wow. thing to think about. Um, uh, medications will do this to you. There's Parkinson's medications that have to do with the dopamine system that can create not only gambling addiction, but also sex addiction in people. Oh. And so we have to uh, take this holistic approach to this, you know, this holistic understanding right. of uh, biology and abuse and society and blah, 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 blah. Um, and what's the final word on this, Berto? Well, I think that to, to bring it back to the original... Oh, yeah. We haven't addressed the main question. Yeah. So, the original so question. Let's get to the main question here. Uh, <laughs> you know, her main point is, I... So, <laughs> the, the reason why uh, we're only getting to her main question right here is because because of our societal weirdness around this whole thing... Right. I feel, as a clinician, compelled to have that hour and 15-minute long conversation before we can even talk. It's a lot of context you need. <laughs> yeah. Before we can even talk about yeah. you know, her main point here, which is I have – I liked my, my abuser. The, yeah. the man who sexually abused me, I have – still to this day in my adult life, tremendous amount of warm feelings for him and was very appreciative of our relationship. Right. And and he was a father figure. He taught me uh, how to have empathy for animals and for other people. He, he was a good person. Right. And what he did was wrong and he shouldn't have done those things, but I have a good relationship with him in my mind. Right. Um, what do we think about that, Bert? Well, look, I can relate in a non, you know, okay, so it's, it's very different, but it, there are some similarities in the following way. Uh, so I've, I feel like I have a strong relationship with my dad. Yeah. I have some very strong feelings of affection for my dad. And he taught me a lot of great things about life and how to be and things like that. At the same time, he lost his way life-wise decades and decades ago and became dependent and 
taught me some very bad lessons about money and about relationships and about how to be. And uh, and he's, he's dependent on you financially. Well, now he is. Yeah, but like the point is that. I developed terrible habits around finances and money and how I even conceptualized those things and possessions and property, everything. So so in many mental ways, I, I was damaged by his actions or his way of being or, or both, right? Um, and now I'm, you know, I, I have a lot of mixed feelings and mixed, uh, it affects my life. You know, it's, it, it affects my finances. It also affects me emotionally. But at the same time, like I said, I have a lot of affection for him and I have a lot of beautiful memories with him and, and all these things. Again, I realize not the same effect. He didn't abuse a whole bunch of children, things like that. But for me, it is a dichotomy. If someone came to me and said, your dad is clearly evil because he, he depends on you. He doesn't make money. All these, any number of things they could lay, label him with and stuff. I would have to say, well, that's how it feels to me. Well, the label evil does not feel right to well, me. Well, maybe to be... Uh, in a different language that I'll put in your mouth is, and this I think is actually an apt analogy, given all the context we've gotten to this point, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, in that you would say, well, yeah, uh, I could see how you would see that because I was impacted in all these right, negative right, right. ways by him. If you wanna, and many other people, yeah, if and other people, if you want to label that evil, then uh, okay, I, or I, or maybe if evil is too strong for this content, uh, uh, really bad person or something, you know, like yeah, maybe useless to society, something harmful. He's harmful. a harmful, harmful. person yes. to yeah. me, and yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, I I I get that, yeah. and and I also have my own feelings for my dad, right? And, and so that's him. that's what's sort of again when we take away the stigma. Uh, or attempt to and really look at the the reality of the situations you have a not this this person that she's describing uh, in my category was a non-sadistic pedophile someone who preferred having sex with children but was not out to uh, harm wasn't didn't get off on harming people and so what do you do in a situation like that well, what you should do is suppress your urges and fantasize and not harm children. That's right. You can still have wonderful relationships with kids if you can manage your, your harm. You know, this guy could have just had a great relationship and taught her empathy and, you know, could have done all those things without without, without abusing her. Yeah. But, you know, uh, what do you do if, if you're a fully-fledged human being and you have this tendency? Well, you're, you have a lot of needs. You have, yeah. you have this sexual need and you act this out this criminal immoral way but you also have needs for relationships and you also have needs for connection with people and right. you also have intimacy needs and you also have needs to of generosity and and, right. and so with the people that you're close to uh who happen to be the people he was abusing uh he was expressing all these other kinds of of things as well yeah and those aren't fake they're not uh, necess- now they can be fake to to, well, group, to trick people and yeah. groom people. Some of it, whether it was fake intentionally or not, it sounds like he was very effective at at grooming and using his. Uh, I don't know if "charm" is the right word, but some sort of qualities that would make the the kids feel like they could be safe and like they could be this and that. But that part of it was unfortunately predatory, right? And so that should be mentioned is again. But how do we? Uh, phrase that. How do we? How do we? What's the semantics around that? Do we call that? Do we call all of his behavior grooming, 
or do we call his behavior as being a human being and being nice in contexts where abuse wasn't occurring? You know, what it, in the clinical world, what I hear is, well, obvious, and I'm sure listeners are out there thinking this is like, well, obviously he was grooming them, you know, and where's that line, right? Where's the line between evil, intentional manipulation and, tr- and having a relationship with people that is uh, uh, caring, you know, in the midst of immoral, terrible, shameful abuse, you know, not shameful to the victim, but shameful to the perpetrator. Yeah. Um, so um, I, I, I don't know. Do you have anything to say about that? I, I wonder what you would, you listeners would think about this, honestly. And, oh, the one thing I will say is this is not the only email I've gotten like this. Yeah. I've gotten a number of other emails like this. Interesting. Where not only the, 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 as a child, in this, you know, analogous to this, having fond feelings for their abuser, but adults who would have fond feelings for people who were abusive as well, yeah. other adults, and how they will go to people around them and because they're, they struggle with it, you know, they're just like, I have these positive feelings. I miss that person. And I'm, I'm really angry at what they did to me. And then they go to people around them, including other therapists, and everyone is, you know, is just shocked with that. And they're like, how, how can you have those positive feelings? That's terrible. You know? Okay, how about this then? Because what do we do with this situation? Uh, a gal comes to us and says, and with a black eye and a hurt arm and some scars. And we say, what happened? Oh, nothing. And then after a long conversation, it comes out like, well, my, my husband beats me. We're like, that's horrible. And then after more conversations, like, I, I know, I know, but look, he's, he's a really good father. He's been there for me in so many times. And, you know, sometimes I deserve it. It's just, I know, it's horrible. Like, he shouldn't do it. You're right. He shouldn't do it. But I still, I've been with him for 15 years. It's such a deep relationship. Now what? What do we say about the person? Is he just, you know. What would you say? Well, Okay. After we've had this conversation, I'd say like, well, maybe there is some, maybe they were uh, victimized and abused. Maybe there is some uh, psychology there that it's not entirely because they were born evil or whatever. Uh, but they should be, got, they need to be separated. He, he needs to not be with people that he's going to abuse. Not just her, but future people that he was going to abuse. So he needs therapy. He needs, uh, he needs, they need to not be together right now because she's being actively abused. And, and and I guess I would say to her is like maybe what we've been saying. Look, I understand why you feel that way, and, and it sounds like you've had real emotions and feelings with him for many years. At the same time, he is abusing you, and you're being physically harmed, and it's causing lasting damage. And so, unfortunately, like you, you know, I wish you would do something about that and, and separate yourself from him or something. Right. Uh, I would modify that to some extent. And, and 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 I'll the, you're answer, you're asking me that question, and the answer is, I since I became a therapist and was exposed to perpetrators, have always had this point of view of, oh, I get it. Perpetrators are human beings. Yeah. Now the, there's very occasional psychopaths, but we're talking like very low percentage, like less than one percent. Yeah. The the amount of, who are true sadists or no empathy and just, right. you know, they, what? 
people, I don't care. There are people like that, you know, but they're extremely rare. And I have very rarely came across them. The perpetrators that I met were all actually not that. Yeah. And what I found was, yeah, they were abused. They had PTSD. They had been indoctrinated into an American uh, idea of male gender because they were all men that uh, perpet- that uh, you know propagated a certain way of thinking about ownership of women and blah 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 they were desperate for a- attachment security in their with their with their uh, wives and when that was threatened they would get into conflicts and they would they would uh, decompensate and be very uh, hurt and upset and desperate and they would resort to these behaviors that they learned from their fathers frankly I see. and and now that does not excuse their behavior. Nope. It's nope. criminal. It's wrong. They're responsible for it. Plenty of guys who go through similar backgrounds know that they need to stop doing that. Or the first time they do it, they're like, whoa, I need to get therapy or something's right. got to change here. And there, there's plenty of guys like that. So, uh, so this isn't to say that they're off the hook because anyone – I'm just going to come out and say it. Anyone who harms another person – who could have done something to prevent that, that is an immoral act, and you need the hard hammer of the law to hit you on the head. That's right. Like, you need to, you need to stop that. Someone who sells marijuana on the corner, they don't, nothing about that is harming another human being. Uh, someone who is um, embezzling or creates a financial system that screws over a bunch of people, the hard hammer needs to hit them on the head. Someone who purposely punches their spouse in the face and controls them and terrifies them uh, over the span of a long period of time without ever saying, hmm, maybe I need help for this. Uh, You need the hard hard hammer of, of law to hit you on the head to make you stop that. The society needs to do that. Having said that, I have worked with so many of these people that every single time it comes down to attachment security. Mm. They were attachment uh, injured as children. They grow up, They, as anyone else, they want a relationship with someone. As any other relationship, there's conflict and there are threats to security in that relationship and they react, right. which perpetrates more distance from their spouse, which perpetrates more hurt and more desperation, which perpetrates control and abuse. It doesn't excuse it. The hammer's got to hit them on the head. Yeah. Uh, and many other guys will turn in another direction. And but, I think the same is true about the pedophile situation. Right. Basically, everything we said, it's like he's, he's a human being. Uh, the feelings she had for him are real. He abused children. That's wrong. Right. Hammerhead, all yeah. that stuff. And that's what she's saying. And honest yeah. picture is like, look, you know, I, what he did was terrible. Uh, but at the same time, I, I had a very close relationship with him. He was my, you know, she's saying, this man was essentially the only father figure in my life. In most aspects of life, he was a very kind man. I loved him. I relied on him, and he taught me a lot of things. He actually taught me a lot of empathy. Uh, he would take care of stray cats and all these things. And, and so uh, it's, it's the, the, the final word I will say on this, two points. <laughs> One is, is that we need to grow up as a society and stop acting like children when it comes to sexuality in general, in addition to this. And two, 
things are complicated. Life is complicated. And both and can exist. Yep. A person can be abused by someone and be hurt by that and be angry by that and f- have a loving connection with that same human being. Life is complicated. It's not black and white. And that's what the anonymous patron is telling us. She's like, life is not black and white. And I cannot come out of my closet and reveal the fact, reveal my feelings, even though it's not my fault, right? because of the way society views this whole thing. So we as a society, because we're so adolescent about our views of sex, we are harming this anonymous patron, even though she didn't do anything wrong. She was the survivor of the abuse, and we are keeping her in the closet. And and when she does come out of the closet, we're telling her there's something wrong with her. Right. And that's terrible. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Where I wouldn't stand then is if someone says – Oh, but I had this great relationship with this person, even though there was. So as a result, I'm a going to cover for them, b enable them to continue abusing. Right. So that's where we part ways, right? And that's not what she's saying. Right? I'm just saying if someone were trying to say, "Oh, but you don't get it," it's they're not a bad person. So I I can't turn them in, or I I'm going to make do everything I can so they don't go to jail. Or you don't understand. You don't they're understand. really nice. Exactly. Yeah. At that point, it's like, sorry, your feelings are your feelings. Not good enough. We have to have these boundaries. We have to have these laws, and we have yeah, yeah. Well, that does it for that extremely uh, uncontroversial yeah <laughs> uh, episode of Psychology in Seattle. If you haven't become a patron, please do so. Go to patreon.com. Become a patron. If you want to contact us, you can email us at contact at psychologyinseattle.com. Please, everyone, take a deep breath and take care of yourself and take care of other people because you deserve it. Hey everyone, today's episode is brought to you by Talkspace. Talkspace is a super legit online counseling outfit that I fully endorse. I know what they are up to and have looked into their practices to make sure that I am uh, you know, promoting something that I believe in and I do believe in it. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty close with someone who actually works there, Shannon McFarland. She trains the therapist. They, they, so if you're looking for online counseling and, uh, or you're just, you just want to experiment with it, you just want to see what it's all about, go to talkspace.com, use the promo code Kirk. You have to use that promo code one to get your discount and also to let them know that this advertisement worked, which means that they'll pay for more ads to be in this podcast, which means that I can, uh, you know, spend more time in this podcast, which means I can do more deep dives, which I've been having a lot of fun with lately. So again, go to Talkspace.com, use the promo code Kirk, and you will, I think, be set up with a therapist pretty quickly. Uh, I think that's pretty cool. So do that now if you're interested. 